Hello everyone, this is the Audience Explorer, a podcast for you as a founder or creator who wants to develop an audience for your product or service. I'm Matthias Bohlen. Hello, dear listeners. This is another episode of the Audience Explorer. Matthias Bohlen on the microphone. I'm happy to have Steph Smith here today. It's nice to meet you. Hello, Steph. Hey, nice to meet you, and thanks for having me. Thanks that you're here. Um, I'm so excited to hear more about what you do. I, I read on your website that you do so many things at the same time, or even um yeah at the same time so um our listeners will be curious to hear what it is that you are currently doing yeah to your point i often whether it's on a podcast or when i meet people am asked what i do and i guess my full-time job is well was at a company called the hustle which was uh -huh. one of the biggest newsletters in the world that was acquired by hubspot so now i work at hubspot and i was working on a product called trends it was a paid newsletter so that was my full-time job for a while for the last two years or so but in addition to that i wrote a book last year i taught myself to code a couple years ago so i've built little projects online oh. i this past year in 2021 launched my own podcast as well it's called the shit you don't learn in school um and i guess yeah i'm just always trying new things out online and one of the things that uh if people are interested that has really like guided my view on that is Paul Graham's essay, Keep Your Identity Small. It's a great essay. It's it's actually structured around something slightly different, but it's this idea that like, I think a lot of people do gear themselves around being like, I am an artist or I am a marketer. Or, I am yeah. a developer. And you don't only need to be that one thing that your identity is curated around. So that's kind of why I'm very happy to kind of bounce around, even though it may sound stressful to some other people. Interesting, especially about identity. I feel very much that that one person can have several identities. Um, yeah. I inside my myself am several persons at the same time. Uh, is that right? Yeah, exactly. I think it's quite strange, actually, to consider that your identity as a human, this like very dynamic thing to be one thing, right? Yeah, you, yeah. No single person in the world has a single interest. In fact, most people have many, many strong interests that they want to pursue, but then they end up just in the way that I guess they've been taught to do to only pursue that one path. Yeah. But instead, there's actually no reason why you can't pursue multiple paths. And a lot of the unlocks like remote work in the last couple of years actually allow you to do that more easily before you had almost a time constraint in terms of having to go to one office, right? For eight right. hours, commute there. And then basically right. most of your day is done. But today you have this kind of flexible day that you can allocate, let's say 30% to one thing, another 50% to another, another 5% to something else. And that is actually something that was a big unlock for me when I started to pursue all these things, because prior to that, I was a little limited in just like the share of my time that I could allocate to any given thing. Uh. Yeah, remote work has really enabled us. It's it's a pity that that uh, COVID had to come around so to force everyone into remote work. But I think there were many people who did that before COVID times, right? Yeah, I've been working remotely for around five, maybe even six years now. It's hard to tell with the years because <laughs> COVID just feels like you know blink of an eye. But yes, lots of people did it before. And to your point, it's unfortunate that a pandemic had to force so many other people into it. Yeah, but I think it was this 
wonderful test. It was an experiment for much of the world. And much of that experiment prior to the experiment thought this could never work. And I think what it showed is, yeah, maybe it works better for some industries or some people prefer it more than others. But generally, I think many people were probably surprised that, huh, this actually it at least can work and it yeah. seems to be working to some degree. And one thing to keep in mind is as someone who worked remotely prior to the pandemic, pandemic remote work kind of sucks for everyone as in <laughs> you just don't have the same outlets and the same, I don't know, like life that you had before the pandemic. So as someone who loved remote work before the pandemic and still really likes it, it's been a lot harder. And so naturally I can imagine people jumping right into it or like, oh, I don't know if I like this, but I can guarantee once, you know, the world kind of gets back to normal, I think a lot of people are going to be like, wow, this is actually really amazing. I have the flexibility and my social life and X, Y, or Z that I have been missing over the last couple of years. Yeah. Uh, my um, wife and I, we love going to restaurants and, and dining out. And um, in, in the pandemic, it hasn't been possible anymore because the, the, the law um, um, restricts it because of those infections. It's it's such a pity that we are not able to anymore. But working remotely is a, is a great thing. In um, the beginning of 2021, 20, yes, I was really... Um, I was really uh, upgrading my studio here with with camera, with lighting, with microphone, whatever. So it, um, I was almost forced to do it, but it's it's a lot of fun actually. Um, you write a lot about uh, remote work in your blog, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I haven't written for a while, but I write about it. I tweeted about it. My podcast, we talk about it. It's especially in the last year, one of my favorite topics to talk about because I talked about it a lot before the pandemic because yeah. I was like, this is something that I just wanted more people to experience yeah. and to not pass off as something that you know works for one person but can't work for another. And the reason I have had almost like a renewed interest over the last six months is as I just spoke about, I think there's a lot of pushback, especially right now, of either people who have tried it and are like not quite sold on it, which I understand not everyone needs to love it. But I also see this pushback of like companies, for example, saying we need to have our people back in the office. And I just think it's a very backward stance. And I think it I think of remote work as an innovation, and I truly think it is the same way that the iPhone completely changed the world, the yeah. airplane completely changed the world. Remote work, I think, fundamentally changes the world, and in really macro ways. This is not a small change. Uh, an example of something I found the other day was that, like, the number of commute hours in the U.S. alone in 2020 saved was in the billions. I think it was around 16 oh, billion wow. hours of commute hours saved. And you can just imagine like that is a, a macro shift in our society. And that's just yeah. the United States yeah. alone. And there are many other kind of second, third order effects from remote work, but that's why I love talking about it because I truly see it as like almost like one of the few age defining things that will happen in our lifetime. And I find it interesting because with any innovation or any, especially technology innovation, there's always a lot of pushback. If anyone's curious, you can just Google like pushback or fear with the airplane, with the iPhone, with the railroads, Wi-Fi, yeah, even teddy bears, yeah. any innovation, <laughs> if you're going to call a teddy bear an innovation, had a ton of pushback. In fact, one concrete example is there was people who literally thought it would take 10 million years for humans to fly. 10 million years. So anyway, oh, that's boy. that's my, my <laughs> rant about uh, how I think you know every technology is feared, every innovation is feared, and I think remote work is actually going through that 
phase right now. And that's one of the reasons why, again, I've kind of had a renewed interest in talking about it. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true with with innovation. I remember the 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 books I read about um, the early trains when they started to become faster than 30 miles an hour and people said above 30 miles humans will die. Exactly. And, uh... <laughs> they thought they would like melt or evaporate or something yeah. crazy. And really there's a there's actually a great site called Pessimist Archive if people want to just see the depth and the breadth. The breadth is more important here. Every innovation was doubted and not just doubted but like the railroads really feared in, feared, in many yeah. ways and the other important part of this is it's not just you could say uneducated people some of the smartest people in the world got this wrong in at many junctures so it's it's important for people i think to look at something like the pessimist archive to see wow like it's very easy to mispredict the future or to fear the future. Yeah, absolutely. And so you can use the past to almost remind ourselves that we're probably doing that in some dimension currently. Yeah. I'm only waiting for time travel to happen, right? This would be really an innovation that I would like. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We'll, we'll keep our fingers crossed. Yeah. Um, I also learned in, in the last few weeks that, uh, no, and not in the last few weeks, it's even longer because uh, I bought your book uh, already some time ago. It was Doing Content Right, and I'm a very big fan of that book. I'm, Thank you. Uh, exercising SEO and everything for my blog. Um, and um, I, I understood that um, you wrote, yeah, wrote a book in, in parallel to, to everything else that we we're doing. How, how did you uh, get this book written? How did the process work? Yeah, so it did get written in a short period of time, but I always tell people that even though I wrote this in a short period of time while I was working full time, mm -hmm. it really was the combination of many, many years of just doing those things, as in the book is about creating content, and I probably spent the you know, three to five years before that, doing oh, that yeah. and learning yeah. about it and being paid to do it and leading teams to do it. And yeah. so by the time I actually sat down to write it, it was much less work and much quicker than, you know, a normal person who had never gone through those things. So that's really how I did it as I was doing many other things. And then another just like simple hack is of course parkinson's law i just set a very very arbitrary but tight deadline yeah so just yeah. like get it out there i don't know if other people feel the same way but at least with my own productivity in order to work on many things in tandem they're not actually all in tandem because if i'm working on eight things at once none of those will get finished and so what i try to do is really really constrain what i'm working on and so for that book it was written in i think around seven weeks and i just oh, like that's a short time. <laughs> just like really yeah. compressed it because if i had left it to seven months i think i actually never would have published it yeah it's a kind of force field that that pushes you into the result right into into achieving exactly. something yeah yeah amazing amazing so uh and and about this book how how did you get uh, the first readers for it how did you get the first people interested at all in this in the subject yeah so this actually starts with choosing the book itself as in when I started creating it, it actually wasn't even supposed to be a book. I mean, it only mm -hmm, became a book mm -hmm. due to the length, which was just due to how much I had to say about the topic. But initially it was just going to be a blog post. When I started my blog, my personal blog in 2019, it took off in the first six months or so. And as that was happening, I basically wrote an outline for 
this blog post about, you know, creating content online successfully. And that outline itself was several thousand words. And I actually got so overwhelmed by it that I kind of put it aside because <laughs> uh, I was like, oh my gosh, the outline is, is this long. And later on, I revisited it. But when I revisited it, I'd learned a lot about validation in the market and mm -hmm. especially with mm -hmm. indie hacking. And I decided, let me just tweet about this. I'd also grown my Twitter audience by that point. And it just, I just said, look, if I actually write this, and again, I don't even know if I framed it as a book or just, you know, a blog post or what, but I said, if I create this, would people pay 10 bucks for it? And a lot of people said yes. Some people even said they'd pay more for it. And then that was enough validation. I threw up a pre-sale page. People paid for it. I think in the first day, I think several thousand dollars came in um, from that pre-sale. And so that was enough validation for me to say, okay, yeah, I'm going to go absolutely. now and build this. And then from there, of course, I've done other things to, to generate more sales, but that was the initial kind of cohort of people. And it's pretty cool because actually before that I had never sold anything on in terms of my own projects. And so that was kind of fun to be like, wow, like this is my Amazing. first paid product. <laughs> That's totally amazing. Uh, even with a blog, the usual effect normally is um, you write something and nobody is, is reading it. Um, yes. Then Google <laughs> comes around with the first three or five hits and goes away again. Um, how did you get uh, more readers onto your blog into, in, in the first place? Yeah, so I cover a lot of this in doing content, right? But yes, to your point, most people, when they are creators, they focus so much on the creation and then they create wonderful stuff, but no one sees it. Yeah. And so they focus probably, you know, if I were to say the average in terms of talking to many creators, like 90 plus percent on creating and less than 10% on distributing. And from my experience, it's got to be around 50, 50. So for every blog yeah. post I published in that 2019 period, which was not that many, I think it was probably somewhere between a dozen to 20. So maybe 16 or so in that first year. Um, so around once a month, not, e not uh -huh. even a crazy volume of blog posts, but it was because for every single post that I published, I created um, a distribution plan, which meant posting it on you know, in different communities, relevant communities, not just spamming it across the web um, It included posting it on my Twitter. It included optimizing it for SEO. I got pretty lucky in a sense because, well, of course it, it relates to hopefully good content, but of those 16, four of them ended up trending on Hacker News, which obviously gives you a massive bump. I yeah. also had building up, been building up my Twitter audience by then. Um, and of course, again, I shared like more tactical stuff in the book, but the really key, as simple as it sounds, is that most people from my experience spend just a fraction or even a fraction of a fraction of time in actually getting their work out there. But it's kind of silly when you think about it, because most of the people or even the companies that you love the most have put a lot of money and time into marketing themselves, not just oh, creating yes. what they create. Um, but for some reason, many, especially, you know, new creators are like, if I create it, they'll come like that's kind of like a common yeah, misunderstanding the dreams thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and it's not true. Right. Um, and then the other thing that I cover a lot in the book as well is just if you are going to write online, it needs to be a long term endeavor. Now, I think I got a little lucky in terms of it kind of growing so quickly. Yeah. But incorporating that SEO element, th those 16 articles still bring me thousands of page views a month now because I optimize certain ones for SEO and th they continue to bring traffic. And that's really the only way that you're going to grow sustainably because even though I got those hacker news hits early, 
their hits and then they they disappear yeah, they're and kind so, of spike right exactly it's it's a flash in the pan and so you do need to gear your distribution around the long-term efficacy or the mm -hmm. long-term traction mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. what you're also building and what kind of people are you serving what what do you think do they have a name for themselves do they say we are so and so you know that's a great question because It's so funny because a lot of people, when they create content, they think of it very differently to a startup or a company, but it's it's got a lot of the same structure or a lot of the same mm -hmm. frameworks mm -hmm. that must be applied. And one of those really simple frameworks that you would always think about if you're building a startup is who is this for, right? Yeah, but yeah, people, when absolutely. they're writing content, they're like, I'm writing a tech newsletter stuff. And I'm like, great. Um, and they're like, do you know <laughs> if it's going to be successful? And I'm like, well, tech is pretty broad. And also like, how are you, you know, how are you tailoring this to people within tech? And it's just, it's, it's, they structure it in a way where, again, they think just, if I create something good, whatever good is to them, people will come. But yeah. no, the first question is, who am I writing this for? What are the types of differentiators they're looking for? And so for me at the time, I will say that when I was creating my blog originally, I wasn't thinking about it with these mechanics because they kind of came together afterwards. But in some way, I guess I was accidentally doing that in, in the sense that who I was targeting early on so that my early blog posts were a couple of things. One of them was, as we talked about remote work, one of them one of the categories was also about learning to code. And so I would say it was curated for a lot of nomads, but you could also kind of extrapolate mm. that to be um, intellectually curious people. But even that sounds broad. What I would say even more specifically is people who experiment with their lives. Um, and so those people were the people that I was targeting, again, kind of unintentionally, but based on the topic set that I was going for. And then the the differentiator for me in terms of how I was actually different in approaching those people is that all of my articles were, you could say, extremely transparent. So they were more honest than most articles. So if, you know, one of my early articles was the guide to remote work that's not trying to sell you anything because all of the stuff I saw out there was like, you know, some company that was trying to sell something or some person who was trying to sell some ebook on remote work. And so That's an example of something that was really transparent. Anytime I like learn to code, right? I would write an article about exactly like the resources I used or yeah, exactly, yeah. you know, um, the tracking. I used to track it every single day. But the point is that's that's who I was targeting. People who as even though it sounds really niche, people who experimented with their lives. And I was just much more transparent or honest with my articles, which is important because a lot of people or some people will get to the audience stage, but then they won't get to the, the differentiator stage. And ultimately, you need both. That's an interesting point. How do you call that? Uh, the audience stage and the differentiator stage? Could, could you elaborate a little bit on these two? Yeah. So um, like I said, some people don't get to either of those stages. And they're just like, I'm going to start a newsletter or a blog or a podcast. Yeah. And this is not just true for individuals. It's true for companies. I see this all the time. They're like, well, it seems like it's time to launch a blog. And then that's it. And then they just hire some writers and they start writing. And they don't ever think about the audience or the differentiator. Yeah which are both essential. Now, quite a few people will get to the audience stage and as simple as this is, it's literally thinking about exactly who this is for the same way that you do with a startup. So an example, as I mentioned, is like people would be like, you know, I'm writing a tech newsletter and I'm like, okay, that again, it's pretty broad. It's like, are you writing tech news? Are you writing for CXOs who 
you know, are looking to hire people in a specific industry, are you writing about cybersecurity? Is if you're writing about cybersecurity, are you writing for the individual to stay safe? Or are you writing for the CTO to learn how to implement right. this in their company? They just, you know, broadly will say, I'm, I'm writing about X. And so part of getting down to specifically what you're talking about is so that you can identify exactly who you're trying to reach. And when you go through that exercise, I didn't really go through it when I was explaining it myself, but you want to think through like, okay, who are these people from like job titles to their age? If they have a specific skew towards gender, you know, where are they spending their time? What websites are they going to? Um, how much money do they make? You want to get to that level the same way that you'd get to that level with yeah. a startup. And then the part that I see the least people get to, which I would say is actually the most important, is the differentiator. And all that means is how are you doing this differently? And again, this is very obvious in startup land where you're going to say, oh, my startup is cheaper than the existing alternatives. My startup is you know, gets to the solution faster. It's X, oh, Y, or Z okay. better than what exists. But for some reason, a lot of people don't focus on that with content, even though it's the most important thing. And just to illustrate its importance, when you go and tell someone about your favorite newsletter or about your favorite podcast, you are never saying, hey, John, I love this podcast because it talks about technology. No, like when have you no, ever heard that? No. <laughs> because so many podcasts talk about technology, right? Absolutely. Or even if you're going to get even more specific, even if you've gotten really nitty and gritty about that audience and you say, hey, John, I love this podcast about cybersecurity for executives. No, they still don't say that because ultimately, even if there are, you know, 50 podcasts about cybersecurity for executives, a couple of them will do that better. They will have a better differentiator, meaning they'll be, they'll be way, way, way more academic or contrarian or novel or the equivalent of being cheap or fast in a startup, yeah. but for content, right? So why would someone read your stuff versus someone else? And it's really simple when you think about it because there's so much content out there because it became democratized that you need to stand out in the sea. And so again, as simple as that sounds, I see so many people who just use the tech newsletter example again, will come to me and they'll say, Hey, Steph, I'm starting a tech newsletter. Do you think it'll be successful? And I'm like, based on that description, I have zero idea. It could be the most successful newsletter in the world, or it could be a newsletter that literally zero people read. So you need to find that differentiator of how you're actually doing the thing differently uh, and attracting yeah. the right people. Now I see. I, I found this a good example that you said um, when you talk about your favorite podcast, uh, you don't say it's a, uh, I'm so fond of this podcast because it's a tech podcast. Um, for example, when uh, when I heard um, uh, the first interviews uh, ever uh, from Steve Portugal, he's in the UX field, in the UX research field, and he really does interviews in a, on a very, very deep level. He gets deep people into talking deeply about uh, what their experience of the of the product is and what, what emotions uh, are going on. And he has a he has a, a way, an amazing way to ask people and leave the silence so that they can really answer. It's, um, it's all those yeah. things that, that he's differentiating himself. Exactly. And there's so many other podcasts probably about UX or product. And ultimately, one of the exercises that I tell people to go through is if you think you have a differentiator, try to take that and parse it into a single adjective. So for the example you gave, maybe it's more inquisitive than other podcasts out there, right? And other examples like strategy maybe is more deeply researched than something else. Yeah. Maybe the hustle is more funny. 
um, or more yeah. friendly, right? So there's there's all types of adjectives. And typically, if if it's clear enough, you can parse it into an adjective. And that's important because the way things are shared depend on the friction to share them. And if something is so clearly one thing, so clearly hilarious, so clearly fun, so clearly uh. academic, whatever, so clearly high quality, whatever you want to call it, it's much easier for me to then go to my friend and tell them. But if it's a little muddy and it's kind of like a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and I go to my friend and I'm like, I really like this podcast because, and I struggle, I'm much less likely to go and tell them about that particular thing. It's reducing the kind of sharing velocity of your particular content property. And so if you do want your stuff shared, which ultimately will determine its success, then you have to be very clear about what your differentiator is. And trust me, if you can't determine what that is, then how is anyone else going to tell their friends about it or even convince themselves to continue engaging with it? Wow, that's a, that's a big point, I think. It, it's an entire exercise in itself, right? To, to become conscious about what, what am I good at? What is my point? What is my, my differentiator uh, uh, versus the, all the other podcasts that I can find on Apple? Um, what is it? It's an exercise in itself, right? It can be scary, I think, to, to think, oh, I have to be different. Does it, isn't that stressful for a podcaster or for, for a content creator in, in general? Yeah, of course. And I think it's probably the same stress that, you know, someone who's raised a bunch of money and they're six months into their startup and they have another six to 12 months of runway and they realize, wait a minute, like, what are we doing that's different than what else yeah, exists yeah, out there? Yeah. And yes, it's it, it can potentially be scary, especially if you're far enough along and you realize that you never addressed this in the beginning. But the best time to address it is now, right? The best time to realize, oh, actually, do I not have a differentiator is today instead of continuing to ignore. Oh, that. yes. And producing and producing without any any special point. Yeah, exactly. And that's ultimately just a quick note on that is often when I see people like slogging along and they're like, Steph, I'm 12 months in. How do I know if I should keep going? Well, most of the time, the answer is you probably shouldn't. But one of the key things to address there is that differentiator. And most often it's not like you chose the wrong topic. It's that you didn't differentiate within that topic, right? It's, mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. never that, you know, there's always room for another tech newsletter, another travel blog, another, you know, business podcast. There's always room within even the most competitive spaces, but you have to differentiate. And that's often when people are in that slog and they like wake up and they're like, but I've been writing consistently for 12 months. And I'm like, well, would you read your own stuff? That's also a nice proxy for determining if you have a differentiator. And yeah, that's that's like the key question if you're at that juncture, but it should also be addressed if you're just starting from new, that's like the best point to ask yourself that question. Mm, amazing. Yeah, that resonates with me when, when, for example, when I read my old blog posts, sometimes I'm surprised and I think, oh, that's a good piece. Uh, I didn't know that I did that I knew that I, I have forgotten yeah. in the meantime, for example, <laughs> thank God I wrote it down. But um, with other blog posts, I think, mm, okay, that's a yeah, okay, pretty good piece, but mm, not nothing exciting. So yeah, uh, it can help to read old things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and be honest with yourself, because I feel the same way, where I look at, you know, even to use those 16 blog posts as an example, I look back at one or two, and I'm like, 
I wrote that like and I'm like similar <laughs> yeah. to you I'm I'm a little <laughs> impressed with myself but yeah. there are some where I look back and I I debate taking them down and I don't but you know there there are definitely blog posts or podcasts or other forms of content that I've created where I look back and I was like people liked this or <laughs> yeah. you know you should actually be the most critical of your own work right and yeah. I ask this question even on a lot of people try to grow Twitter audiences and I ask would you follow yourself? Like really be honest. If, if the same content was coming from a no-name person on Twitter, would you follow them? Would you and follow yourself? Yeah. I think uh, most people, I think I ran a poll and around 50% said no, but I honestly think it would be higher. If people were really, truly honest with themselves, I think probably 80% plus of people would realistically say no. Mm. Like this is not great content. Okay, so there's room for exercise. Um, when we go back to your audience for a moment, um, you said they were maybe nomads, maybe people who try to experiment with their own lives to, to get into a new quality of life. Um, did you ever meet with those? Did you uh, get to know some of them? Yeah, yeah. And I think a key was that I was one and I was living that life and I was around nomads. And so, yes, when I started to write in 2019, I was living a nomadic life. I think I originally started my blog in South Africa, but then for a lot of that time I was in Bali with other nomads. Wow. Okay. And so I, I knew what their pain points were. I saw all these designers or product managers saying, oh man, I really should learn to code. I saw, you know, my friends who weren't nomads messaging me and saying, hey, I, what's this remote work thing? I, I really want to do it. I see all your, yeah. your your stories. And so that's another key part, which is obvious to most people, but still some people don't follow this where they try to predict what other people will care about, which mm -hmm. can work. Mm -hmm. But the easiest way to make sure that you're creating good content is that you are the expert in that thing. And expert does not mean academic expert. It means that you know what people are looking for within that topic because you've lived it or you've studied it. Or yeah, you've, you've been there you know, simply. Yeah, yeah, you've experimented yeah. with it. And so, yes, I was around other nomads. Now, I wasn't like doing user interviews or anything like that, but I could just observe what was happening around me because I was living it. Can you work? Uh, can you walk us through an example of where you met other nomads and what happened? Yeah. So, I mean, I was nomadic for, you know, it's hard to remember now, but probably four, maybe even five years. And yeah, at that time in 2019, I was on a Wi-Fi tribe trip, which was a one of the only ones I did, but it was like an organized trip that they organ they, they actually just book things for you and it was in South Africa and I remember uh, writing the guide to remote work that doesn't sell you anything partially because I remember on that trip there was people like me who were just like full-time nomadic who mm -hmm. had kind of accepted that reality permanently and then there was people who had booked that trip as like a one month getaway from their job or, you know, as a test uh, to see okay. if they could be nomadic. Yeah. And that was partially inspired. That article was partially inspired by that experience by seeing these people who didn't realize like how easy it is to just like flip that switch and just decide I'm a nomad now. You know, one of the funny things about all these eBooks that talk about being nomadic, I don't know if they exist now, but at least prior to the pandemic, they did, they, they used to sell this life and they used to sell this ebook about like how to become a nomad and some of us nomads used to joke well the easiest way to become a nomad is just buying a plane ticket you just buy a plane yeah. ticket and you're <laughs> a nomad you've decided i'm going and, and moving somewhere i'm traveling and that's it um and so i wrote that article because i could see people who were kind of on that edge and i wanted to write an article about all the things that you know were 
maybe hidden in these ebooks or construed by these blog articles that were just like, this is the accuracy. This is the truth about becoming a nomad or, or, or starting to work remotely. This is what you need to know. This is what you don't need to know. Um, and these are the kind of traps you should be aware of. And so, yeah, that was an example of like directly from my experience in living that and seeing the like hesitation that some people had. I was able to create that article and that article didn't wasn't one of the ones that trended on Hacker News, but it was shared around really widely because I think it spoke to people and they were like, oh, this is actually the information I've been looking for. Hmm. And when you went on this uh, Wi-Fi trip, did you say the Wi-Fi trip? Why is it called a Wi-Fi trip? It's, it was called a Wi-Fi tribe. That was, you know, there's several different companies that still exist. Wi-Fi tribe still exists. Remote year still exists. There was several others that I, I think shut down and now there's been new ones, but the idea is when you're a nomad, one of the biggest downsides to being a nomad, similar to the downside of working remotely, being social interaction as a nomad, you don't have a consistent set of friends. Now that's not always true, especially people who end up kind of nomading, we call it slow matting and, and kind of mostly staying in a couple places. Uh, but these trips help facilitate some of that social connection by bringing people together for a month in one place and planning everything or remote year originally and still runs trips uh. like these are like 12 month trips where you actually spend 12 months going from one place to another with the same group of people. Uh, and maybe they call themselves Wi-Fi tribe because they need Wi-Fi to, to be yeah, on the exactly. road, Yeah, right? exactly. It's just kind of like a, a, a silly, but fun name uh, for, yeah, the, okay, for the company. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. And when you met those, what, what were they uh, what were they like? What were their questions, their their challenges, the things they were working on? What what makes yeah. a nomad? Well, like I said, what makes a nomad is is very simple. It just means that you live nomadically, which all it takes is booking a trip and leaving your lease yeah, behind. Apart from that, what, what was special about them uh, that you met? Well, so I think what was special about that particular group is that most of the time when I was nomading around, I was around full-time nomads at, at that mm -hmm. point, right? So if I'm in Bali and I'm in a co-working space, all those people in Bali have already, you know, taken the leap to go okay. be completely nomadic. Okay. But what inspired that article while I was on that trip was again, seeing some of those people who were on the edge. So I could almost see what gaps there were in, in them wanting to become nomadic, but kind of still teetering and and that was what inspired uh, just that particular article to say you know what are all the things that you if you aren't fully nomadic or you haven't kind of jumped headfirst into remote work these are the things that you should know and even if you don't want to do that these are again the title of the article was something like the guide to remote work that's not trying to sell you anything so it's like here's everything you should know about remote work if you're debating it because again not only was i seeing the teetering within Wi-Fi tribe at that time, it's kind of silly now because now everyone is, or not everyone, but many digital workers are uh, remote. But yeah. before that, it's important to remember like very few people were. And so I had so many friends, you know, DMing me on LinkedIn or on Instagram or on Twitter being like, hey, like, how do you do this? And so it was also kind of a function of that too. Huh. So you some some of them you met in person and uh, many of them you met on on social media social media asking you questions. Yeah, the most easy way to determine what you should write about is just to see what people ask you about because that is as simple as it sounds a filtering mechanism to see one what do you know a lot about because if you don't know a lot about something someone's not going to ask you about it. Yeah. But also what does the world need? 
right? So you can know a lot about something, but if the world doesn't need it, unfortunately, it's not really going to be something that is going to thrive, right? And so that is such a simple question to ask yourself. And often people will come to me and they'll say, hey, Steph, I'm thinking of creating my next product or, you know, writing a newsletter. What should I do it on? And that's the easiest question. What do people ask you about or what do people ask you for help on? It if you ask yourself that question, you may realize, oh, actually, like yeah, a lot of people come to me for negotiation. I'm really good at negotiation. And again, it checks the box. People think of me in, as an expert in this space mm-hmm. and there's demand for it because people are asking for it. They're actually asking for it without me even talking about it. Right. So there, there's a pull there um, instead of a push sometimes with certain topics. That's a very good indicator. Like. That's a good yeah. indicator of, of, of that there's demand, right? Um, what, what did you do with the questions? Did you write them down so that you could use them for your article or what was the way to process the input that you got? You know, that's a great question. For that particular article, I wrote it pretty quickly, but with other things like the book, yes, for a while, like remember I said that I created that outline for a long time after that, I would kind of jot down all of the questions that people were asking me about content. Mm -hmm. Also things that I was seeing in specific communities. For example, I was in, um, this newsletter telegram group. And I would just kind of jot down the specific questions that people were looking to get answered. And sometimes they would get them answered in the chat, but sometimes I would also be like, huh, I think I can actually answer this even better than what I'm seeing here. And so I would over the year or so from that outline to actually going and writing it, I would jot down through my own one-on-one encounters or in communities, things that I was seeing that I thought could add to the book. And that actually relates to one of my articles, writing is thinking. And I walk through my writing process. One really important part of it is a lot of people uh, write in one session or two sessions, because that's what we're taught in school. But I find it really, really helpful to lower the activation energy, but also to produce a better product by like getting an idea for something and then letting it ruminate, letting it marinate, letting you pick up on different things that are important, which is leading to one of the first questions you asked me here, how did you write this book, you know, at at the time of working? Well, it was actually really, well, I shouldn't say really easy. It was a lot easier because I had been picking up, you know, little tidbits from around the web while I was leading up to that book. Amazing. Um, to summarize all this a little bit, what, what do you think? Um, are there any recommendations that you have, uh, like five most important points or three most important points when you say if someone wants to be a content creator, uh, what would you recommend uh, things that they absolutely need to do? Yeah, so let's let's summarize a couple of things we talked about. So the first thing is that you should never just create you know, a blog or a podcast or a newsletter just because everyone else is doing it or because it's time to do so. You should do it because you have something to say. And that something to say can be a derivative of you being an expert somewhere, or it can just be something that you just truly want to say. That was an example of my early remote work articles. I just, I had something to say. I saw this gap in the industry and I wanted to say something. So the first thing is don't just start something because everyone else is doing it. But if you do have something to say, then clearly outline your audience and treat your content property like a startup. Say exactly mm-hmm. who you're targeting, mm-hmm. how you're different than what else exists out there. You can also do the exercise that we talked about with the adjectives. Make sure that 
you have a differentiator and you can parse it into an adjective. One easy way, because I find that sometimes people struggle to do this exercise at first is to go through your own inbox or your own podcast feed. So what you already listen or to or read and do the same exercise to say, I like this podcast because, write it in a sentence, and then take that sentence and turn it into an adjective. Again, punchy, novel, contrarian, visual, concise. Mm. Do the same exercise with things that you like because that might actually make it easier for you to pick up on on what you can differentiate with. So if you're creating content, make sure you have a differentiator. If I, if you take anything away, it's that one thing. The second thing that people should take away is this idea that if you create it, they will not come. You must invest in distribution. You must invest a significant amount in distribution. And if you're in the content game, it should be for the long term. And if that's true, I would really encourage people to focus on bedrock channels. The biggest and most significant of which is SEO. So even though mm-hmm, SEO seems mm-hmm. like maybe too gamified for some people, or maybe they just they just want to write, they say, I'm an artist. Trust me, if you want to create something substantial, focus at least part of your time on SEO because that builds the bedrock for you. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the other things that we, we discussed, but those are two keys that you know if you don't have a differentiator and you're not investing in distribution, you're going to end up as that archetype that I mentioned earlier of someone who's like, I've been writing consistently for 12 months and nothing's happening. And I look and often it's either they never had a differentiator or they didn't spend any time on distribution or not significant time on it or a combination of the two. So if if you're going to take away kind of like two checkboxes, make sure that those two are checked. Thank you so much, Steph. I think that was a real good summary of what we talked about. And this will enable our listeners to produce content for their audience much easier. Thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Audience Explorer podcast today. You can find me on Twitter at GetTheAudience. And you can check out the blog at gettheaudience.com. If you have any questions about this episode, reach out to me on Twitter or send an email to matthias at gettheaudience.com. If you want to support this podcast, please leave a rating in your favorite podcast player app. This will help other founders or creators to find this podcast about developing an audience for their product or service. Thank you very much for listening and see you in the next episode. Bye-bye.